Nothing Important Podcast. This is actually take two with Eric from Tugboat Coffee. Let's go. Again. How's it going, buddy? Very good. How are you guys doing? Very good. Uh, for those of you listening, it's just kind of a funny snafu. Our, our equipment kind of goofed up on us. So uh, Eric and I were talking for about 15 minutes, and it was <laughs> it was unusable, right, Dave? It's totally unusable. <laughs> so, so we're we're gonna go again. We're actually sitting here with Eric Barkley of the Tugboat uh, of Tugboat Coffee, and he's gonna talk uh, talk to us today about like his company, what he does, and he's gonna educate some of us people that. Um, Aren't really coffee aficionados. Awesome. But maybe now, or actually now I have some information. Maybe I can ask a few questions. <laughs> yeah, so Eric, I hope you remember everything lot. that you just said for the last 15 minutes, okay? Yeah. You ready we'll, to go? We'll try to recreate it. <laughs> <laughs> verbatim uh, if possible. Please. Verbatim. I want exact word for word inflection and got everything. It, got okay? it. We were just talking about how, you know, when you do a session, you have to repeat yourself to, you know, the same right, thing right, over and exactly. over again. So we do that for interviews. This is all a big setup. We just want you to, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're going to copy together later, get a better take. Uh, yeah. So I, I own uh, Tugboat Coffee. Uh, I'm the, uh, the owner and the roaster um and uh, we're in addison illinois uh and we supply coffee to coffee shops restaurants and uh like specialty retail stores uh throughout chicago and the midwest um and uh coffee is uh is pretty much all i think about every day and you, you ship to order online right yeah we do uh online retail we don't have a retail storefront or anything we ne- never will uh we're just a, a wholesale manufacturing uh center so um we uh ship online uh but uh, otherwise it's all out to coffee shops okay perfect and um just so we know where exactly can we find more information about tugboat coffee on the internet yeah it's uh, tugboatcoffee.com tugboatcoffee.com yep. wonderful okay eric so dave and i we, we know very little about coffee I'm, I'm gonna admit it but part of what we do here at the at, uh, the nothing important podcast is we love talking to people who are genuinely passionate about what they do, we we want to we want to find out what makes you tick, how you go through your process. Um, so, as the head chief, awesome brewmaster, <laughs> Omega founder guy of Tugboat Coffee, why don't you run us through how how exactly long have you been in the coffee business? So, I got my uh, start in coffee down in Gainesville, Florida. Um, initially, I started at Starbucks. Uh, it was just a uh, part time job to uh, help pay my way through college and. Uh, uh, started drinking coffee there, but it wasn't true coffee. I was drinking uh, coffee with a lot of chocolate, milk, or all the other <laughs> stuff in it. Um, and, and you, you didn't when you were in Florida. You went to uh, University of Florida Gainesville, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, your your original your original career path of choice was uh, marine biology. So marine yeah, biology. That's, quite, quite a stretch going from. Uh, <laughs> You know, giving physicals to whales and sea turtles to, to, to brewing coffee. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm from Chicago uh, originally, um, went to Glombard West, and uh, went to the University of Florida um, to, uh, to be near the ocean, obviously. Um, wanted to do marine biology, and uh, after I started, uh, loved the, the courses and everything. Saw how much a marine biologist actually made for a living, uh, and decided that I uh, wanted to do something more lucrative. Uh, <laughs> So I switched my major to marketing, um, and uh, I think it was one of the one of the bigger mistakes in my life uh, to give up something that I really wanted to do. Fortunately, after I worked at Starbucks, uh, I, I saw that there was a lot more to the coffee industry, so I started working at independent coffee shops, 
Um, and I, I worked as a barista for six years down there, and then I started roasting uh, for two years in Florida. Um, and that's I found the exact same passion that I had for marine biology and coffee. Uh, and uh, luckily, after my first mistake, uh, I knew I wasn't going to leave the coffee industry after that. Um, I'd found uh, something else that I was really passionate about and loved working in. Was there um, was there any aha moment, like any moment where you're like, okay, this is this is exactly what I want to do or was it like a slow build up? You just kind of started working. You're like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Or was there any particular moment where you're like, you know what? Uh, coffee is, is the life for me. This is, this is where I need to go. So it was more of a slow buildup, but, um, but Ethiopian Harar, uh, coffee was, was really what set me on the, on the path to trying to find more about coffee and, and learning as much as I possibly could. And what, what exactly is Ethiopian Harar? Uh, so Ethiopian Harar, the Harar region of Ethiopia is, is a coffee growing region and, um, they're, they're known for their naturally processed coffees and an Ethiopian Harar coffee, a good coffee will, uh, taste like you just smashed blueberries in a cup when you grind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was when I smelled Ethiopian Harar being ground for the first time and, and it didn't even smell like coffee. Um, and I served it to people and just saw the reaction. Uh, it's, I fell in love with coffee and just wanted to learn as much as I, I possibly could. So Right. And that, that's what we, we find very interesting because Dave and I, you know, we, we have this idea of what coffee should smell like, right? Like, cause most of our experience would probably be some, some brand of coffee, like Folgers or something like, like that. Dirty feet. <laughs> dirty feet. <laughs> well, like, like we, we talked about, Keurigs, uh, yeah. you know, like ma- <laughs> Keurigs and like dirty feet, mass yeah, produced coffee, like McDonald's it. and such, you know, they're a little bit more bitter taste, but that that's not the kind of coffee that you do. You do coffee that has, that's more flavorful and sweet, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, Crop uh, coffee as a crop is the most labor-intensive crop uh, I think in the world. Actually, um, everything is done by hand. Uh, besides Brazil, which does a little bit of mechanization of the harvesting, um, all the cherries ripen at different times. So every single day, somebody has to go out into the coffee fields and pick the cherries by hand, the the ones that are ripe. So it's hand on. Every every time you have a coffee bean. Somebody has has plucked that. It wasn't exactly. like a big machine running down the field. There, there's somebody there grabbing it by hand, putting it in the basket, and bringing it to where it needs yeah. to be. Yeah, and and the Arabica coffee, which is uh, primarily what what we drink in the U.S., um, is grown at very high elevations. So uh, near the equator, it's up as high as like six, seven thousand feet. Um, and uh, what, what does the higher elevation do for? So the higher elevation, you do, uh, you want a very slow development of the cherries. You don't want them to grow really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the high elevations, you have cold nights that do not go to uh, below freezing, though, um, so that the cherries develop very slowly, and uh, that allows them to develop more flavors in the coffee as well. Okay. Uh, so all the countries that are really close to the equator, you if you want a really good coffee, you have to go way up into the mountains. So if you go further away from the equator, um, such as uh, growing coffee in Mexico, uh, you could have a, a lower elevation of uh, maybe 4,000 feet for an Arabica coffee. Um, you also have Robusta, which generally we don't drink in the U.S., um, which would be grown at elevations around 2,000 feet, uh, which has a much higher caffeine content, um, but it's also uh, a, a not a, a pleasant coffee to drink. It's very um, low-grade coffee. Robusto? Ro- uh, robusta. A uh, Robusta? Yeah. So, like, robust, like, full of flavors, what comes yeah, to Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so, so, Arabica. Yeah, like it's less coffee flavor. A little like more that. bang for the buck, like, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, like uh, the, the really big um, coffee companies, Folgers and stuff like that, they'll use, because uh, it's also much less expensive. There's not mm. as much demand for it. Uh, uh, they uh, will blend that with Arabica coffees. Um, there's also a lot of other things that go into uh, the, the ground coffee you get in Folgers, but um, it's not pure Arabica coffee, which is what you find at specialty coffee houses and, and okay. uh, specialty retailers. Oh, very cool, very cool. So how how do you go about actually finding where to buy the coffee beans from? Because it's, it's not like we can go to like Indiana or Wisconsin. Like I can't drive up to the Dells and be like, yo, farmer, I want two tons of coffee. How do you actually uh, go through the process of actually finding suppliers of your coffee? Right. So the U.S. only has one place that, that we grow coffee, and that's in Hawaii. Um, and it, it makes it very expensive uh, to, to grow coffee there because uh, the handpicking and, and um, uh, the labor involved in, in harvesting the coffee is really expensive in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, so most of the coffee comes from Central, South America, um, uh, East Africa, Indonesia, and Asia. Um, China has a, a huge developing specialty coffee market. Um, yeah, they're growing incredible coffee. Uh, Indonesia is really known for their Sumatran coffees. Um, and then East Africa just has these unbelievable, really sweet, fruity coffees, um, which is where my preference lies, um, is with East African coffees. Um, but depending on where I'm getting the coffee from, I have different importers uh, that actually travel to those countries four or five times a year to inspect the process of the coffees and the harvesting of the coffees to make sure that when we get it here in the States, three to six months later, that uh, it's the same quality that we expect and that we're paying for. Mm-hmm. Um, so for any small roaster to actually go to these farms uh, and uh, and source the coffee themselves to truly determine that they're getting the same coffee and high quality coffee, they'd have to be going there several times a year. Uh, so it's not re- realistic. Uh, so I have importers um, that I use, uh, three importers I use on a regular basis, and then several others that I use on an infrequent basis uh, that actually go there, source the coffee, and then uh, I pay them uh, for their fees and uh, of actually importing it. Um, but there's so many places that uh, something can go wrong with the coffee, and, and just in terms of when it's picked, uh, how it's processed, uh, even up to how it's shipped. Um, so uh, to give you an example, I had a uh, Indonesian coffee uh, last year. Um, I had a bunch of bags of this coffee, and uh, it was all unbelievable coffee, just perfect. I got to the last bag that I had, and uh, it was completely different color. The, the coffee should be like a really nice green color when, mm. when I get it, um, and it was all discolored, and, and it was simply because it was on the outside of the shipping container. So it's traveling from Jakarta all the way up around the top of Africa, usually a stop in Europe somewhere, and then over to New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> so in that entire process, just the heat pounding down on that shipping container right. uh, changed completely changed the characteristics of the bean because it was on the outside of the shipping container is receiving a lot of heat. Mm. Um, so th- there's a, just a lot of a lot of places that can go wrong before it actually gets to your cup. When you go when you go to purchase uh, beans and you're and you're looking for certain flavors and such, do you have to take into account seasons in other parts of the world, or since it's uh, primarily 
tropical regions there's there's consistency there no yeah there's there's um uh, with again with the exception of brazil which actually has irrigation and stuff uh, they they can produce they are producing 11 months out of the year and it's it's consistent pretty much all year as well uh there's a heavy rain season in most of these countries and a light rain season uh so the heavy rain season produces the really good crops uh, a lot of coffee during that season uh, and then it takes a long time to process it and actually ship it over here. But uh, there's also the light rain season that we can get coffees from. Generally, they're not as good. Uh, it's a much lower yield as well. Um, but generally, the coffees aren't as good. There's there's always exceptions. But uh, Kenya actually calls it the, the fly crop uh, for their light rain season. Um, so I try to get the coffees from, from the countries when they're actually in season at their peak of harvest and, and producing the best quality coffees. So do you have to buy like a pretty large? advanced amount then because if it goes into the next season then like you said it'll decrease the quality do you have to to buy an advanced amount so green coffee actually has like a two-year shelf life oh um I work with certain coffees. I do about a 12-month inventory. Uh, and then my East African coffees, because I'm obsessive over East African coffees, I only do a six-month uh, inventory with East African coffee. So I, I offer those seasonally. Um, and there's it, it's a very small reason. I mean, they lose a little bit of brightness and acidity after six months. Most 99.9% of people wouldn't notice any difference between a six-month-old East African and a year-old East African. Uh, but just since that's what I drink primarily, um, I can tell the difference. Yeah, I, I but, <laughs> but you'll know, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And, but, and so, I mean, but that's that's great because if you know, it, it shows that you're passionate, you know your business. And even though somebody like me might not be able to taste the difference, you know, you're 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 tasting it and you're, you're making sure that you're putting the best possible product out there. Right. Right. And, uh, it, it definitely leads to, uh, you know, much more difficult inventory practices. Uh, mm-hmm. uh you have to make, make a very, um, you know, religious checklist on, on the coffees. And, um, it also sometimes upsets customers. They, they get used to having a certain coffee and then, uh, it's, it's gone and I'm not going to have it again for another six months. Uh, so, um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, other issues that are created by doing that. But, uh, for that 0.1% of the people that are going to be able to tell a difference between a six month old East African and a year old East African, um, I'm doing it to please that, that 0.1%. Um, the South, South American and Central American coffees, they're, they're not very acidic coffees in general. So, uh, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. And, um, that's a, a really common coffee for people who use as a house coffee in, in their coffee mm. shops. So those I do a 12-month inventory on. Uh, some of the Indonesian coffees I do a 12-month inventory as well. Um, but uh, like the Brazil, they're producing 11 months out of the year. I, I can get a, a, a bag of Brazil. It tastes identical pretty much any month of the year. Um, so it's not a big issue with inventory there. How many, How many? Uh, I guess, flavors? It would be coffee flavors? Uh, coffee origins, um, okay. origins. How, how, yeah. how many do you currently have right now? Right now, uh, I have ten, um, and wow. actually, uh, I, I actually want to reduce that. Um, I prefer to have a, a very small selection, um, and and that's, I think, uh, will lead people to come to get those specific coffees from me. Um, it takes uh, a lot of time to develop a roast profile for each coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, after uh, maybe 130 pounds of roasting a coffee, I'll actually start selling it uh, to a coffee shop. Uh, so it cost me a lot of money to actually develop a <laughs> roast profile. Uh, so once I find one and once I have it perfected, um, I, 
I don't really want to switch away from that coffee again. Okay. Um, so I, I, we'll, we'll, I want to talk about that in a moment, like how you actually go through the roast yeah. profile and such. But you actually brought uh, some coffee as a sample for us, correct? Yeah. So uh, this is a uh, Guatemalan coffee. Um, it comes w from one farm. Uh, it's called uh, Finca El Inhertal. Uh, and it's a uh, family-run business. It's it's been in the exact same family uh, for about 200 years now. Wow! Oh, um, and they uh, they just have been doing things from the beginning very ethically. Um, they've set up nature uh, preserves on their plantation for all the native plants and species. Uh, it's shade-grown, so there's actual natural foliage over the coffee instead of uh, like netting or something like that to mm -hmm. provide a synthetic shade for the for the plants. Um, and and uh, they're producing, in, in my opinion, one of the best uh, Central American coffees in the world. Uh, it's just an unbelievable coffee, very consistent. I've had it for a couple of years now, and it's every single year. It, it just seems to be, get better and better. Um, and um, uh, they, I've obviously, uh, you know, been in the trade for a long time, so uh, they know exactly what to uh, to do with processing and, and harvesting. Um, and when I get Every single bag, uh, the beans look identical from from one bag to the next, which is fairly unusual uh, for uh, for coffee. So, um, I found an incredible farm, and uh, uh, actually plan on visiting this farm uh, relatively soon. Nice. So, is your Guatemalan coffee available on your website? Yes. Yeah, we have uh, it. You, do you only sell to retail, or you can you can sell? Somebody buys a bag, you can send them a bag. Yeah, yeah, we can we can do uh, retail. Uh, we we don't have a, uh, a retail location. We're we're just a roastery, so uh, we're not necessarily open to the public. But uh, they can purchase coffee online, and and uh, yeah, we roast the Guatemala. All of our coffee shops, um, uh, the other, we do we roast on demand, so we don't carry anything in our inventory roasted. Um, we roast for that coffee shop. And then whatever uh, is not sold, uh, we actually donate to a, a local charity. So unlike a big bulk roaster um, that uh, McDonald's, gas stations, uh, those type of places are carrying, mm -hmm. um, those coffees, or, or even a grocery store, those coffees are usually sitting on a shelf for six months before they're ever sent out. Oh, wow. Uh, so with all of my coffee shops and uh, and 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 retailers uh, we try to work on a two-week inventory so um, I can tell a difference after a coffee's two weeks old uh, most people wouldn't be able to tell a difference till it's about a month old uh, but um, again we're trying to just produce the best possible cup of coffee for for the customers at a coffee shop right, so right. the point is you know right like yeah, exactly. the expert, right? <laughs> it has to meet your standards like it, do, it doesn't matter if if i you know dave it doesn't matter if dave and brian know the difference the fact is is that you know the difference yeah there is so a difference yeah. it's gonna it's gonna ensure that it's the best possible cup of coffee that you could be providing for the people who would pick it up. Right, exactly. Right. Um, so I, I work very closely with all the managers and owners of the coffee shops to make sure that we're working on a, a at most two week inventory. I have a lot of coffee shops that um, uh, work on a week inventory. So they're literally brewing all the coffee that they get that same week and then reordering the following week. So um, it, it's uh, it's a it's a lot of work to produce coffee that way, but um, it absolutely makes a, a tremendous difference in the the quality of the coffee. So let's talk about um, the actual process of making the coffee, right? You have you have a huge roasting machine, right? It's, it's, 
It's it's uh it's large. It's not um uh, any anything near what um Starbucks or McDonald's would mm-hmm. be roasting on. Um, I actually just got a chance to see one of one of Starbucks roasters. It was a 2,200 kilo roaster. It's actually being uh, manufactured right up in uh, Vernon Hills, oh. um, and you can walk through the roaster. It's that big. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, uh, so I roast uh, on the same. Uh, manufacturer that that Starbucks is using. It's uh, the company's called Probat, um, and their U.S. headquarters is, is right here in Chicago. Mm. But um, so mine is a 12 kilo. Uh, there's 2.2 pounds in a kilo. Uh, so technically, I could do like 24 pounds in a batch. Um, I, most I do is really 20 pounds, usually about 15 pound batches. Uh, and then you lose a lot of weight during the roasting process, 20 to 30% uh, of the weight. So you actually only get, you know, 12, 13 pounds out of a 15 pound batch. And uh, how long does a batch take to, to roast? Uh, it takes anywhere between like 11 and 15 minutes. Um, I only do one dark roasted coffee uh, and, and dark roasted um, would be actually like, Starbucks is blonde roast. Uh, so that's very dark for, for my standards. Um, it's actually still by Starbucks standards considered a light roast. Uh, so my coffees are all very, very light roasted, uh, except for, uh, our Sumatra. And then um, just, just for clarification, what, how would you define the difference between a dark roast and a light roast? So a, a dark roast would, uh, it's based on the temperature, um, that the, that the bean achieves during the roasting process. Um, so our, our dark roast, darkest roast that we do is just entering second crack. Um, during the roasting process, you have, uh, a lot of chemical reactions going on that, mm-hmm. that makes a, a almost a flavorless bean uh that's really hard turn into uh the coffee that that uh, you know and you drink um so the first crack uh would be when the uh the water is actually turning into gas um and it makes popping sound like uh like popcorn mm. um it's very audible very loud uh so you can it's easy to distinguish during the roasting process um, and so light roasted coffee would be, um, like anywhere from the end of first crack, uh, up until a couple de- degrees past the end of first crack, uh, which is where most of my coffees are roasted. Um, that gives you, uh, you can taste all the different flavors and the processing methods of the coffee that way. Once you get into the darker roast, you're primarily just tasting the roasting process and not mm. specifically where the coffee was grown and how it was grown. Mm. So whenever you take, um, I, I always compare it to steak. Uh, it's an easy comparison for most people. If you have a flank steak and a flame mignon and you char both of them, Mm-hmm. They're both going to taste the same. Whereas if you do a rare flank steak and a rare flame mignon, it's going to be a world of difference between them. Right. Uh, so when you have these incredible coffees from all over the world coming in and you just dark roast them all, um, it's essentially just covering up all the work that's gone into the coffee. <laughs> um, but Sumatra... Uh, Sumatran coffee has like a very strong musty flavor to it. Uh, if I were to do a light roast on it, it would not be appealing to most people. Uh, you take it into a darker roast and a lot of the origins flavors are still there just because they're so strong and predominant in the coffee. Um, but you can mellow out the unpleasant flavors in the Sumatran coffee by doing a dark roast on it. So our Sumatran coffee is actually one of the most popular coffees. Uh, it's, it's very uh, robust flavor. It's, it's a, a very unusual coffee, um, but it appeals to a, a pretty big audience. So uh, a lot of people like it. How do you, what, what inspires you for the, the different flavors in coffee and such? Like, for example, Dave and I, uh, a few weeks ago, sat down with Chris at the Devil's Trumpet Brewing Company in Maryville, Indiana. And uh, Chris is a lifelong musician uh, plays in bands and he, he 
he, when he was developing his beer flavors, talked about how a lot of it is music inspired. Right, gotcha. like, like he he sees the process very much like like uh, how you would build a song or how he okay. would write a song or how he he that's how he sees it. Is there anything that inspires you particularly to the flavors of coffee, or do you just have a really keen idea of how exactly you want it to to taste and how you you want you know how you want it to brew? Well, um, so I tend to have a little bit different taste preference than than a majority of uh, coffee drinkers would. Um, I, I like very sweet, very flavorful, um, unusual flavors in coffee. Um, and it was actually one of the, the big realizations that I had to come to after I started my roasting business was um, that that's not what most people want. Most people want <laughs> just a really good cup of coffee that doesn't like shock them when they take a sip. Um, so the Central and South American coffee is the Guatemala. Uh, it's, it's exactly what you'd expect coffee to taste like, uh, but it's just an exceptional coffee. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I develop uh, my East African coffees more to my taste preferences um, and just try to draw as much uh, like fruity sweetness out of okay. them as possible. Um, and again, that takes dozens of roasts and that, and to that's figure the out. roast profile right yeah exactly so can you walk us through the the process of actually developing a roast profile and how where 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 do you start and how, how do you know when, when you're done yeah so the uh the first couple times i roast a coffee um a new coffee i'm actually even every year that i get a, the same coffee and you you're just finding out how the coffee is going to react to the heat uh, based on the moisture content of the bean um, how it's processed how it's grown where it's grown is going to determine how it reacts to uh, the the heat that i'm putting into the system so um, it, they'll all respond wildly different um, and uh, so the first couple of roasts i'm just figuring out where uh, it's going to start becoming endothermic where it's going to be uh, coming exothermic so that i can start adjusting temperatures long before that because uh, it's it's like uh, driving down the road you're always putting tiny little corrections in mm -hmm. um, in order to continue going in a straight line uh, so that's generally the first couple roasts is just trying to figure out how it's going to react and then after i know how the coffee is going to react to the heat then i can really start refining the process um, so that i just uh, uh, have the the development period which is uh, like the first crack to when i dump the roast um, it's just figuring out exactly what temperature i want to take that to within a certain parameters of uh, percentages and, and things like that so uh, i'm constantly running calculations um, i have like one of those like graphing calculators uh, from high school uh, <laughs> the ti 485. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no way I could do uh, uh, all these algebraic equations in my head. So, um, so yeah, even after I've developed a roast profile, there's uh, different environmental factors every day that, that I have to take into consideration. So uh, even after I've developed a roast profile, I'm still making calculations throughout the roast to make sure that I end at the same result as, as what I want it to be. So, um, but especially, especially when I'm first figuring out a roast profile, it's, I'm just uh, looking at um, uh, the roaster, looking at the beans, uh, listening to the beans, and then doing calculations on a, on a graphing calculator. <laughs> See, that, that's so interesting. I would, I would never think that that part of the process of, you know, like like all your senses are being used, right? Like smell, yeah. you're, you're talking about yeah. cracks. Like I, I would have never thought that coffee made that one crack and it kind of sound like popcorn, <laughs> right? I would, right. 
right? That, that's that's incredibly fascinating. We, and then there's actually a second crack as well, which is um, and you uh, can hear it like the second crack is is much quieter. That's mm-hmm. actually the bean splitting. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be what most people would consider like uh, it's it's called a full city plus roast. Uh, so that'd be like getting into the dark roasted. A lot of companies will take it way past second crack, um, but the beans actually splitting down the center during that. So it's a much quieter, um, uh, uh, not uh, quite as loud crack that you're hearing in the roaster at that point. Oh. Uh, but yeah, the first crack is very noticeable. It's exactly like just uh, <laughs> cooking a pack of popcorn. That's awesome. So you talked a lot about the roasting process, and you mentioned that you have like a very specific way that you want your coffee brewed. Correct. Can you yeah. elaborate on that? Because I'm very curious to hear about that. Yeah. So uh, with all the coffee shops that I work with, um, I, uh, I offer training uh, to their staff, uh, especially the new employees that they have um, come on board uh, in order to be preparing the coffee uh, the way that I want it to be prepared. Uh, I've spent uh, hours and hours uh, just developing the coffee to develop certain flavors in it. So I want to make sure that those are apparent when somebody drinks it at a coffee shop. Uh, so, uh, I have the, uh, coffee shop employees either come down to the roastery or I'll go to their coffee shop. Um, and I work with them hands-on training. Uh, and, uh, the espresso machine is, is one of the, the, really tricky aspects of running a coffee shop um a shot of espresso can be prepared so differently from every coffee shop that you go to you can use the same bean at every place and it'll taste completely different so uh developing a a very good practice on the espresso machine um and then even down to steaming milk uh, it just doesn't sound like a a big deal but uh, it's, it's really difficult to master steaming milk correctly and uh um, so I work with them on those aspects and then uh, brewing ratios and total dissolved solids in the coffee to make sure that uh, it's all within the parameters that, uh, that I expect of, of any coffee shop that I work with um, so that by the time it, it reaches the, uh, the end consumer, um, they're getting exactly you know, what I would want them to drink and uh, what it, they would want to drink at a coffee shop. So. so you're basically just teaching these people how to manage a bunch of chemical reactions. Exactly. So yeah. They get the kind of product that you're trying to sell them. You're like yep. the coffee Walter White. <laughs> I was just thinking that too. I was going to say that. But but that that's, mine's a little bit more addictive though. <laughs> but um, that, but that that's great because that's that hands-on process, right? Because you you pick the beans, you roast it, you go out and you show people how tugboat coffee should taste and how it should be prepared. Like right. all that creates a great experience right and that, that's what it's all about anybody can go you know we kind of touched on this before anybody can go get a shitty cup of coffee from some gas station down the street right, right? but like what tugboat is doing you're you're creating an experience for people you know not only for coffee lovers but it seems like you're you have such a hands-on about it for the quality and such that you want to educate people and you want to bring new people into different flavors of coffee because like right dave like before we we started this we, we were pretty ignorant on coffee oh yeah Right, and no the, like I, I'm sitting there listening to you, and I find I, I would have never thought in a million years that the the process to roast coffee and such, there there's such um, intricacy in it, and that, that that there's so many different steps. It's just something somebody like me typically wouldn't wouldn't think about. Right. And so right. that's why I'm glad that you came on because you know our our listeners out there now know all these little steps, and you know like. I don't typically drink coffee, to be honest with you, but I'm sure as hell going to try, oh, yeah. try try the samples that you brought for me because I, I just find that so incredibly interesting. Like the whole the whole the whole process. What what if we want to brew tugboat coffee at home? So uh, there's uh, 
two really big pieces of the puzzle to making a good cup of coffee is the grinder and then the water temperature. Um, so the Mr. Coffees, the Keurigs, all those uh, $20 machines uh, that you can get at the store don't produce adequate, adequate water temperatures. Um, all coffee is supposed to be brewed between 195 and like 203 degrees. Uh, and the slurry, which is the coffee grounds mixed with the water, should always be maintained within that water temperature. Um, as soon as you step out of that water temperature, you're gonna produce uh, like bitter astringent flavors in the coffee. Um, so there's only a few coffee makers that are available uh, for home use that actually have a heating element large enough uh, to produce those water temperatures. Uh, and then one of them is actually like electronically controlled uh, to only uh, push the water out onto the grounds at 200 degrees. So there's one called the Technivore Mocha Master, um, and uh, it's an incredible coffee maker, all handmade, um, and they're they're really expensive. Um, but you can get the same quality coffee that you would at a coffee shop from your kitchen. Um, and then secondly, the the grinder. Uh, so a good grinder will produce very similar particle sizes. Uh, so when you grind the coffee with a blade grinder, um, which is the ones you normally get for like ten dollars at Walmart, um, you're going to have coffee grounds that are really small and coffee grounds that are really large, of course. Uh, so the water as it's passing over those grounds, over the large grounds are going to be uh, under extracted. And then the really fine grounds are gonna be over extracted. Uh, so over extracted coffee is gonna have bitter flavors, under extracted coffee is gonna have like very earthy, grassy flavors, um, neither of which are desirable. And then a small fraction of them will be ground and, and extracted properly. Uh, so a good grinder will uh, grind all the coffee in very, very similar particle size. Um, and so those are the two really big pieces of the puzzle that you have to solve in order to uh, make a good cup of coffee at home. Um, so Barazza makes uh, one of the best grinders for home use as well. It uses a ceramic burr and the motor is completely separated from the burrs so that the motor as it's grinding isn't heating up the grounds and actually chemically changing the coffee. Uh, so Barazza makes a great grinder and so also a low RPM uh, grinder so that uh, you're also not creating heat and friction while you're grinding the coffee. Wow. Um, and then there's uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. even like the heating element or the the motor heating it up yeah, and changing. Yeah, things so a lot like, of the yeah. grinders, the motors right underneath the actual grinding surface. So you're heating up the grounds and and everything that I've worked to create in that coffee, uh, you're changing. Wow. Uh, and then um, if if you wanted to do more of the individual cup uh, brewing, a lot of people do the pour over now. It's a really popular um, uh, brewing device. It's uh, like a just a cone that you put on top of your coffee coffee a cup with a filter in it 99.9% um, .9 of the coffee shops that are using those are not brewing the coffee correctly so I don't recommend those to anybody it's a very difficult very uh, long process to make a cup of coffee correctly with one of those um, the AeroPress on the other hand is by far the best way to uh, method for making a cup of coffee um, it applies to the most amount of, uh, most origins of coffees and uh, makes every single cup of coffee a little bit sweeter and it kind of combines the elements of a french press so you get a little bit of oils coming through the coffee uh, as well as the clarity of a pour over a chemix uh, coffee brewer or a drip machine uh, so it's being forced through a paper filter under pressure um, and it just creates the most unbelievable cup of coffee uh, so the arrow 
AeroPress, there's a thousand different methods for using it. Uh, there's videos all over YouTube on, on uh, how to use it. And there's also even uh, national and worldwide championships for using the AeroPress. Um, it's really simple little plastic coffee brewer that was actually developed by uh, Aerobi that made that flying disc. It's like a Frisbee without the center in it. <laughs> uh, back in like the 80s or something. That's yeah. how they got their, made all their money. And uh, and so they started producing this this thing called the AeroPress. And uh, that's by far the best method for, for making coffee. Um, and it's like $28 for one of those, which is which is awesome. So it's affordable. Yeah, very affordable, but it only brews about 10 ounces of coffee at a time. So if you want to do a full pot for like a family or a party or something like that, the Technivorm is the only way to do it at home. Um, but uh, for individual purposes, AeroPress is the best way to go. Nice. Nice. Is it Aero, A-E-R-O, or A-R-R-O? A-E-R-O, yeah. So, um, as far as the, the fruit of the coffee? Yeah, so uh, it's it's a new concept idea for the U.S. specialty coffee market, um, but it's something that's been around in coffee-growing regions for hundreds of years. So, when you take the uh, the beans out of the cherry, uh, you have all this leftover coffee fruit, which has an incredible aroma, uh, incredible flavor, a lot of sugar, a lot of sweetness to it. Um, and so what they do in the coffee growing countries is they dry that, that uh, the, the coffee fruit and they brew it as a tea. Um, and then whatever they don't use, they compost. They just use it to fertilize the uh, the coffee fields because there's never been a demand for it mm. um, on a large scale. So um, I've been working with a couple different importers to uh, start getting this dried coffee fruit um, into the U.S. And, and it's definitely a, a difficult, long education process. I've had a few coffee shops that have actually started serving it. Um, but again, that requires a lot of effort from them. They have to educate people on what it is. And it's, it's called Cascar. Uh, and then to further complicate things, there's a pharmaceutical uh, laxative called Cascara as well. So, uh, <laughs> not, not exactly something you want to be marketing, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, but Cascara, the coffee fruit, um, is uh, is used as a tea. You brew it um, similar to uh, uh, like an oolong tea with um, about 200 degree water uh, for five minutes, um, and it produces just an unbelievably sweet. A smooth cup of tea. If you were to combine raisins and mulling spices together and brew that as a tea, it's exactly what it tastes like. Hmm. Um, it's crazy. It's uh, everyone's always shocked that, uh, that there's a whole other aspect to coffee that that they're unaware of. Yeah. Um, and uh, generally, everybody that's a tea drinker just falls in love with it. It has more caffeine than even black tea as well. Hmm. Not quite as much as as the coffee bean itself, but uh, has a ton of caffeine, which is awesome. Um, and, uh, and it's just a really, really sweet cup of tea. Uh, usually, uh, even tea drinkers that put sugar in their tea or something like that, they drink this and they're completely satisfied with it as is. Um, and then See, I, I'm, I'm a big tea drinker. Oh, okay. Myself. So I, I'd yeah. like to try that. Sometime. I brought the, I brought the wrong thing for you then. <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. Um, I'm, I might be a coffee drinker now. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never had not mass produced coffee. So we'll, yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. It's, awesome. it's, 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 um, it's amazing. But uh, and then an additional benefit for the coffee shops is since it's not uh, really finely ground, it's actually just the coffee cherry uh, that you're steeping. Um, you can actually steep it multiple times and you just extend the steep time and uh, it'll still produce. So they can use the same exact cascara twice, uh, essentially double their margins on a, on a cup of cascara hmm. and uh, and produce the exact same quality as, as the first cup. 
Um, so there's a lot of benefits to the coffee shops. There's a lot of uh, benefits to the coffee growing countries. Um, they're not, they don't have as much waste now uh, if we can really start to develop a market here in the U.S. Um, and uh, so far, the, the initial feedback from the coffee shops that are selling has just been outstanding. It's, uh, we're just trying to find more sources because it's really difficult to find coffee farms that are, aren't already composting it. Uh, so the one I'm getting it from right now is in Costa Rica. Uh, and it was actually the uh, the Cup of Excellence winner the last uh, three years in a row, um, and it's a naturally processed coffee from Costa Rica. So they dry the the coffee cherry uh, with the beans inside after it's dried uh, for 12 hours or so. Then they take the cherry off, dry the cherry even further, and then they ship that to the U.S. Wow. Um, so it's it's uh, really exciting to be uh, uh, part of a, a whole nother. Um, you know, aspect of coffee that uh, that we're introducing the U.S. to. Yeah, you'd be early on a whole new market. Yeah, exactly. Getting it on the ground floor. <laughs> Johnny Rockefeller coffee. <laughs> All right, Eric. So if any of our listeners are in the Chicago area and they want to get a cup of tugboat coffee, where would we go? So if you're out in the Schaumburg area, uh, there's Cup and Vine, awesome coffee shop there. Um, if you're out in like uh, Northwest Chicago, Edison Park area, there's a coffee shop bakery combination. Absolutely unbelievable place called uh, Anagra Cafe. Um, if you're out in the suburbs, uh, downtown Lombard has an incredible coffee shop uh, called the Corner House Cafe. Um, downtown Elmhurst uh, actually has two coffee shops, both called uh, Elijah's. Um, and then uh, if you're up in uh, like Elk Grove Village and you're out for beers, they're also serving really good coffee uh, at Salt Creek Pizza and Pub. Um, and then if you're uh, a little bit further south in Lyle, uh, there's a um, uh, really, really cool place where they actually do a bunch of uh, TED Talks um, called Grounds for Hope Cafe. Um, that's in Lyle. And then uh, if you were looking for retail coffee, uh, we work with one of the most outstanding kitchen appliance places, uh, downtown Glen Ellen, uh, called Marcel's Culinary Experience. They also do cooking classes and all sorts of really cool stuff going on there. Um, and then the Fresh Market, uh, also uh, a small like uh, grocery store out of North Carolina. They have a couple locations up here in Chicago. They carry our coffee as well. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> and if you don't live, you don't live in the Chicago area or in the suburbs, you can always buy coffee at tugboatcoffee.com. Where does the name? Where'd you get the name for your company? Oh, oh yeah, okay, yeah, so. yeah, good call. Um, the the name tugboat uh, came out of my my really my family's background. I'm Norwegian. Uh, it's a lot of Vikings on my family, and uh, they actually a lot of my family members work downtown Chicago for uh, John Selvik tugboat lines. Uh, they're diesel mechanics on on freighters that are traveling all over the oceans. Um, so it uh, just stemmed right out of the my my own family and and their uh, their trades. It's interesting because I was just watching documentaries about how the Scandinavians really came here for the Erie Canal, right. the shipping and stuff. And like my, I have a huge Swedish. Oh, okay. Like the biggest part of my heritage is Swedish. Gotcha. So that's kind of fun. Awesome. So I don't know if we're enemies or friends, but. <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> all enemies. Scandinavian countries. Yeah. <laughs> no, all the Scandinavian countries are on good terms. <laughs> Tugboatcoffee.com and you ship internationally? Uh, we have, yeah, even to Finland. <laughs> All right, because even to Finland, okay, because I know for a fact we have a fan that lives in Sweden, and yeah, okay. I know for a fact yeah, we Sweden's actually, we actually do have a decent amount of uh, listeners coming from all over Europe. I just wanted to give a shout out to the guy in Sweden because he always Sweden. hits me up and says, "When's the next episode?" So, Sikander, it's coming, okay? <laughs> but but, um, <laughs> but that that's great. So, worldwide tugboat coffee, Eric. 
thank you so much for coming on. I feel Absolutely. like we, we've learned a lot. It's incredibly, incredibly interesting. And um, as you move into the Cascar and get that running, um, I hope you come back and sit with us again. Awesome. Will do. All right. Thank you. And that's going to conclude the Nothing Important Podcast. Check us out Twitter, Facebook, uh, our own website, www.nothingimportantpodcast.com. Dave, you can stop recording now.